My name is Norbert, and I'm the founder of the Scuba Club on Clubhouse, a community in which uh, we're talking uh, everything that is interesting to scuba divers, and uh, we're creating a community of people interested in ocean conservation and uh, also art. With me is uh, Nina, who's co-moderating with me. She runs a room on artivism, art and conservation, and uh, one of her guests previously was Taylor Griffith, who is with us in uh, a special room we're hosting today. Um, Taylor brought his mother, Liz Taylor, and his grandmother, world-renowned uh, ocean conserva conservationist for many years, Dr. Sylvia Earle. So we're happy to have the entire family here, not the entire one, but three generations at least. And uh, we're so looking forward to uh, hearing from them today and uh, hope you will all enjoy it very much. Thank you so much, Norbert. I'm so excited and uh, yeah, let's start. Welcome, Liz. So you're the president and CEO of, um, do you say D-O-E-R every time? Just we usually just say say D-O-E-R. Some people say doer. They, you know, they say that we're a, a company of doers, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, we, we specialize in subsea technology of various kinds, so particularly uh, remotely operated vehicles and human-occupied submersibles along with a broad variety of, of you know, tools and sampling devices that uh, work across the different kinds of uh, technology platforms. That so we amazing. have one of our one of our uh, large 6,500 meter ROV systems is just uh, completing an expedition off the coast of Hawaii and servicing one of the deepest ocean observing systems in the world, the Station Aloha Cabled Observatory. So they uh, they just finished a series of dives and. Had a nice live stream going for several days as well. That is very fascinating, and we will um, soon ask you lots of questions about that in detail to give the audience a little introduction uh, <laughs> that you're a member of the Marine Technology Society and the Association of Diving Contractors, and you are a member of the Explorers Club, and you have also participated in more than 50 scientific and educational ocean exploration projects. and. Um, this included working for the California Academy, Academy of Science, National Geographic Society, Ocean Conservancy, BBC, Discovery Channel, and the Explorers Club. And you're also mother of two boys. Is that right? That's all right. <laughs> Correct. Perfect. And uh, so Taylor, we already know from uh, the scuba club, um, a few weeks ago we had Taylor Griffith in our um, artivism room, and that's how we know you. And Taylor, you're an eco-artist, um, explorer, ocean advocate, and you're currently living in Los Angeles, California. You have a bachelor, and you're currently working on your Masters of Fine Art um, at the Art Center College of Design. And... Um, yeah, you have done some amazing projects already. You're also a member of the Explorers Club. You have worked with National Geographic, uh, with Major League Baseball, and Parley for the Ocean, and Canon USA. And that is amazing. I am very impressed. And um, 
So we had you in our art room a few weeks ago and we had no idea <laughs> that you were the grandson of um, Dr. Sylvia Earl. And um, yeah, that was a little surprise um, that came later on and I give the microphone over to Norbert and... Um, Actually, we want to hand it over to Sylvia. Welcome to this room. We're so excited to have you. Hey there. <laughs> oh, my phone had a meltdown earlier, or just a few days ago, and my Clubhouse app was missing, so I just had to put it back in. So, hello. So, we were going around, Sylvia, and uh, basically introducing uh, uh, everyone. And uh, we're, we're so psyched uh, to have the three of you together. We feel very privileged. And uh, um, we were starting to introduce Taylor and Liz. Um, and then I busted in. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe Nida will, uh, uh, will tell you what she knows about you, and then you can add. Should be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it will be interesting. We have a few things in, um, planned, but for the official introduction, I said that you are a marine biologist, oceanographer, explorer, author and lecturer, uh, your National Geographic Explorer in residence, I think the first woman, and founder of Mission Blue, founder of D-O-E-R, Deep Ocean Exploration and Research, which you founded in 1992. You also have two documentaries, which is Mission Blue, uh, from 2014 and documentary Sea of Hope 2017 and uh, you were also the first female chief scientist of the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and you were named a Time Magazine's 1998 Hero of the Planet and I can add so much more but uh, we are trying to <laughs> do the room very interactive later on so there will be more introductions coming. <laughs> Did we, did we get you totally wrong, or are we more or less on track so far? How are we doing? <laughs> it was way too generous. <laughs> the three of you are way too humble. I think that's, uh, that's more like uh, uh, what it is. Nina's going to start, and then I thought I, I'd take over for some of the questions. Yes, we just wanted to explain a little bit how this room came together, which was um, by coincidence, more or less, because I had Taylor in my artivism room a few weeks ago, and he was um, speaking about his amazing art um, and how he is protecting the planet by raising awareness. And he mentioned in our talk briefly that he um, got inspired when he first went down with submersible uh, sub, and I, I, at that moment, didn't understand really... Um, how that connection or how that was possible. So I was um, not really reacting to the question. Norbert, do you want to quickly um, say a few words how Sylvia came into your room? Absolutely, just because not everybody was around. It was really surprising to us. Uh, um, I'm uh, holding uh, rooms in the scuba club for a couple of months now. And uh, one of those is uh, a room where people who are currently diving are reporting from all around the world what their dives were like for people like me who haven't been uh, diving for way too long. And uh, so uh, Taylor was in that room and all of a sudden uh, Sylvia showed up. So uh, we were all excited and she shared uh, her experience with us. And uh, I, uh, I loved it so much that I said, let's prepare a room and uh, have a dedicated room um, uh, with her. But Nina had the wonderful idea of doing a family room out of that. And I thought that was very special. And I want to give her great compliments for that and for putting together much of this. 
So uh, we're most excited about uh, having the three of you uh, uh, together here and uh, getting to know more about you. So I would like to have the three of you introduce each other the way you guys do that. So what I would love to do is, uh, Liz, when you're in other conferences, if you could unmute yourself, how do you usually introduce your mother when you introduce her deepness? <laughs> well, that's usually what I say. You know, this is her deepness or, or sometimes mommy deepest, you know, so. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, she's obviously the, you know, you know just tell people how we've grown up in a family of explorers and, and that, um, just carrying on the, through tradition. So the introductions is usually just, you know, this is my mom and she's a diver too. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm repeating myself. You guys are way too humble. So, Taylor, uh, would you like to introduce your mom? Sure, yeah. I usually introduce her. It is, uh, this is my mom. And she is an animal lover, horse lover, bird lover, and just all around great mother. And we get to go hop in the water together sometimes. And Sylvia, would you like to help us introduce your grandson? How do you introduce him? <laughs> Here's Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how you do it? <laughs> so um, uh, Liz already started in her introduction to talk a little bit about DOER, uh, the Deep Ocean Exploration and Research Company that was founded almost 30 years ago. And uh, it's a marine consulting firm, and it's uh, mostly a family business. So what, what I would be very curious uh, uh, about is what are, what are the roles that each of you have and how are you working together? You know, my role here at DOER is just sort of a, you know, general business management oversight, uh, engineer wrangling, <laughs> product development, so forth. And Sylvia is the founder of the company, provides us a lot of direct guidance, particularly in the um, her direct input from her experience with submersibles, working in different with different models and types, and letting us know from the scientific perspective what really works and what um, she'd like to see work differently. So we have a lot of um, direct input there with our engineering team, and then to the extent that that uh, we can, of course, we always involve the kids and many of their friends as well. So we have a really robust internship program in addition to um, having the kids directly here working with us and kind of seeing what goes on in the field. And they've both selected different but ocean-centric um, career paths. Taylor, of course, in the, in the fine arts and the eco arts. And then my other son, Morgan, who's um, about to start his master's program in oceanography. So it's, it's, it's really nice to see them both uh, moving in that direction. And we're continuing to you know, try to help support them in their various endeavors with uh, you know, Taylor and the Parlay work that he's been doing. We worked with Parlay on the Underwater Pavilions project. So that was kind of a first entree into it with the Doug Atkins um, gallery. And then um, the, both the boys taking them to Hawaii and and again, working with some other students and interns to have them use that super low light 
uh, 1 million ISO camera to document uh, bioluminescence in corals wow. that had only wow. before been seen by, uh, by the human eye by Sylvia when she walked along the seabed there in the gym suit um, you know, decades earlier. But Taylor and Morgan working together were able to capture for the very first time video of these corals bioluminescing so that we could share that view with the world. So it's, it's really great to see that sort of multi-generational um, impact and how it can help people to better connect with the ocean. It's our life support system. We, <laughs> we really take it for granted in so many ways. Wow, being, being a, a, an average photographer and uh, being very happy when we get a couple of thousand ISO, uh, a million is, is very, very impressive. Uh, if you would have it, said that... It's a shock. It's four million. It's four million. Four million. Yeah, let's not, be, let's, yeah, not, yeah, let's not aim too low. Yeah, let's not aim low, but, it's, but it was just a, it was a... It was an amazing series of events that led up to that... to the use of that camera to begin with. You know, we, I was at a trade show and, and saw it this little black box sitting innocently on the on the countertop, and I asked them, you know, what is what is that? And and the guy's like, well, it's the four million ISO camera. And I'm like, well, what do you use it for? And he goes, we don't know. We made it because we could. Uh, we took pictures of the northern lights with it. I said, well, would you let me take it underwater? And he and he kind of looked at me, you know, askance, and he's like, well, it's not made for underwater. And I said, well, let me work on that. And there were only two existing in the world at the time, and we built, made a case for it, and they actually sent one to us. And uh, Taylor and and you know worked with it in the in the workshop. We could and and then on into the into the submersible, and then we uh, ended up housing one uh, part of the BBC Blue Planet Two series. We saw the images of the Humboldt squid in total darkness and some other total darkness imagery that was taken with that same camera once we proved that it could be used underwater. Wow. Taylor, do you want to chime in? You started uh, uh, talking about that. Yeah, I think that was a great summary. Um, just to expand on sort of the multi-range of things that I do there around the shop. Uh, well, doer, D-O-E-R. Uh, we just call it the shop. Um, it's always what it's been called to us. Um, but I, I curate a lot of the art around there. I help design camera systems, uh, building little models, 3D printing parts um, for different types of camera systems, for different display models, um, and that side of things. But yeah, that project, working with the low-light camera, was absolutely that sort of catalyzing moment for me and realizing and figuring out this is what I want to be doing and telling these stories, communicating these images that have not been seen and a real hope to show more people and getting those images out there. Uh, like Liz said, having only had it described by the human eye or a very, very low quality black and white grainy image where you couldn't really make out head from tail of the coral. Um, to really being able to capture the full color um, and depth and just seeing how the light pulsates up and down these bamboo corals. And it was amazing because afterwards we came back up from the dive and we're, we were reviewing the footage. Uh, I think with um, what's not perish, 
mommy may be able to help me out here. Um, it wasn't Frank Parrish, but who else was out there with us? Uh, I think it was Frank Parrish and I can't, maybe Jeff Treason was out there, Richard Pyle was out there. There were, you know, a number of scientists in the, in the party in addition to yeah. to our team. So it was, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and one of them had noticed um, that the light moving up and down the stalk of coral, um, just to paint a visual mental image, if you can imagine a long tendrily uh, polypy sort of whip looking thing coming out of the seabed. And when it's touched, it pulses with blue bioluminescent light. And they had seen in the footage in reviewing it after that the light didn't just travel in one direction, which is sort of how it had been thought it worked and described, but it was really pulsing and changing directions. And it was seemingly almost at random, which it wasn't this like predetermined pattern that they thought it might be. So that was one of those little things that this camera really allowed scientists to see upon reviewing and being able to spend the time and actually see these images in great quality, which was really an amazing um, piece for science and how Elizabeth Saint went on to be used for the Blue Planet 2 series. And it's sort of an example of how technology can go from just like the drawing board to fully communicating and showing these never before seen things. That is truly phenomenal. And um, as you were at that point, I think just uh, um, in, in doing your bachelor's, um, did you show also these, did you share these results in your in your school and with your prof, um, with your, with your profs and where they like, I mean, this is like an absolute unique opportunity getting a camera like this and seeing things um, other people don't have the opportunity to. Um, I find that absolutely incredible and um, yeah, did, how was your experience, Taylor, when you shared this with um, your friends or you know, people that know you? And um, just to hear a little bit of that side. Uh, I think within the school community, they thought it was interesting. They thought it was cool. I don't think they fully sort of grasped what it was. I came out of a photography program. So most people were just really interested in the camera and like how it could be used and pushed and what that would then mean for like the consumer end of cameras. If this thing's up in 4 million ISO, that means we might get like a great 500,000 ISO on the consumer end. Um, so they were more interested in that side of things. Um, and I wasn't really sure what to do with this footage, which a lot of the times I think can be one of the sort of hiccups that scientists run into is what do, how do we communicate this data, how do we get these images out there? And that was something that had sort of been lingering on my mind as I was moving into my master's program. And after my first term in, and I had switched, not switched, but it sort of expanded out from photography to working with video and sound and sculpture. Um, I worked with Parlay to acquire some ghost net material, which I was using to make these big sculptures inside a gallery space. And in the same time, I grabbed the old, not the old, but it was a couple years old at that point, that bioluminescent footage, and worked it into this new video piece 
that was looking at the ocean bottom and a desert out, the high desert out here in California. I was sort of drawing comparisons between the two along with field recordings. Um, the field recording had come from just from the area that I was shooting in on land and the underwater field recording came from the hydrophone on the Aloha Cables Observatory, which is also run by the University of Hawaii. Um, the same one that the robot just finished uh, servicing. So really pulling from different technologies in different places to weave these visual and audio pieces together. And the reaction within that program was much stronger and they were a lot more interested in what is this thing, which I thought was really great. Sylvia? As, as a kid, I did what most kids do, asked a lot of questions. <laughs> you know, who, what, why, where, when, how? Um, with parents who did not discourage asking questions and and I think all kids, all young things, even baby lobsters, <laughs> certainly our fellow mammals are curious. And again, I was lucky to have parents who didn't squash that curiosity. And so when I had kids of my own and then grandkids, I did my best to do what my parents did for me, to not squash their natural inclinations and encourage them to ask questions. It's what scientists do all their lives. I mean, you start out as a little kid, but never stop asking questions, Not never stop being curious of the world around you. And for me, it started the love of the ocean, I suppose, on a New Jersey shore, getting knocked over by a wave and getting introduced to horseshoe crabs that came crawling out of the ocean and realizing that the ocean has life and many variations on the theme of creatures that don't occur anywhere on the land. The ocean is where the action is. I, I soon came to understand, and especially when I moved to Florida with my parents when I was 12, my backyard was the Gulf of Mexico. I just, it was a natural sort of, of um, being drawn into the sea. Like, so, it, as a, I, I can't remember not wanting to spend my life doing something with plants and animals. I didn't know what to call it, but being a scientist, being an ecologist, being an explorer, it, it's just an evolution of what started out when I was at least, you know, <laughs> three years old, when the ocean first got my attention. It still has my attention, but trying to open the door for my kids and then my grandkids, scooping Liz and her sister and her brother uh, out of school to go spend time in in the ocean, getting acquainted with a wild dolphin, sort of against the, the rules, I suppose, of, of being a, a parent taking them out of school, but... I figured that the ocean had 
value getting to go and see things and do things that most most kids, most people don't have a chance to do was maybe a valid trade-off. Anyway, <laughs> that's how it began. That's how it continues. We have a few questions prepared, and that completely leads to our second question. Um, and um, I, you are a huge inspiration to so many people, and um, you always say we need to take care of the ocean because the ocean would take care of us. And I heard you saying, and I um, talk that coming from the phrase no child should be left behind you said no child should be left dry and we should all explore the ocean and um so i uh, found out that we were 16 when we first dived with a diving helmet and later um you were one of the first to use the scuba gear and then obviously the first with the gym suit so time has changed since then and when you had children and your now your grandchildren and um but for your grandson, times have changed again because uh, I don't think many many are so lucky to um, be in a submersible with such a young age. So I would like to know uh, at what age um, did you first explore the ocean? And this is a question for all three of you. And what age were you when you first descended in a submersible? <laughs> well, here's before we get into specific dates and such, I just wanted to say generally that following my passion, I suppose, for science, for, for exploring the ocean, meant being away from my family at times, critical times. I regret not being there at special times for them. I mean, the kids were in, were in school, and I was off on an expedition to come back. And it was always great to be back home, but I, whenever possible, I would take one or sometimes all of my three children, um, I'd take them with me. And in some ways, I suppose, by giving them an opportunity to swim with dolphins, to be out with whales in Hawaii when they're young, to be able to introduce them to experiences that most kids would not have a chance to do, or most adults for that matter. Uh, just hoping that somehow it would be good for them, that they would like to enjoy it, that, that sharing what I love with them, and then watching them um, value those experiences. I really want not a substitute for being there for occasions that were important to them, school events and such, but, but being able to give them something that, that I hope has been, been enduring and, and something they, they also value. So, my first time in a submarine was in 1968. <laughs> Liz was eight years old at the time. And, um, of course, grandkids were way off in the horizon somewhere. I've used um, about 30 different kinds of submarines since then. And, of course, as I think Liz has explained, we've had the chance to work together to 
help design and build and then actually use um, little submarines to explore the ocean. So I'd love to hear Taylor's perspective on this and Liz as well, because <laughs> they've had to put up with a lot of engineering right in the living room and to be a part of this extraordinary evolution of ocean exploration coupled with you know, time of remarkable change and loss of, of the ocean. So, over to you, Liz, Taylor. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, definitely, I think all of us have been, you know, witnesses to just a steady uh, increase of pressures on the ocean and, you know, just profound loss of biodiversity uh, in the ocean, and it's 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 hard to to see that and to witness that. But um, you know, my it's my first experience around submersibles was with the um, Johnson Sea Links. When I was fairly small, I just gotten uh, you know now he's certified in the Bahamas, and I got to go out and see the the subs on the uh, on the Seward Johnson diving in collaboration with the Hydro Lab, which was a really cool way to see the fusion of Technologies, the subsea habitat, the submersible uh, surface support ships, and so forth, and then the diving that went along with it. Um, and then the first time I actually dove in a submersible was during the time when I was serving as president for the Caribbean uh, Marine Research Center. We had a little Delta sub out there that we would use in collaboration with divers and a remotely operated vehicle to um, explore the, the deep drop-off walls around the Lee Stocking Island. And and then, um, you know, I was able to, during the five-year Sustainable Seas expedition, uh, I, Taylor had come along, and I was expecting Morgan, and so we turned a, the one-person deep worker submersible into a three-person submersible. Uh, I put Taylor on my lap, and, you know, Morgan was, was still inside, and, uh, and we went diving there in Monterey. So um, I guess his earliest exposure to a, to a submersible, perhaps, um, and set the pace for future exploration. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> so Morgan was diving before he was born. Yeah, so that's definitely the earliest one for me. And unfortunately, I don't have any memory, really, of that one. <clears throat> but we do, though. Oh, yeah. And we have pictures sure to prove it somewhere. <laughs> and we would love to see these pictures. <laughs> but the earliest one I can remember was probably 2003 or four, back down in Monterey. And we were in a little sub called Aquarius. That is the right one, right? Aquarius? Yes. Yes, yeah, so we were with, uh, we were with uh, John London, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, looking at squid eggs at the bottom of Monterey Bay. And that just has, like, this very vivid... Like, I don't remember the specifics of it, because it was we, what, we saw, almost 20 we, years ago, but... We saw octopuses. <laughs> yeah. Octopuses, squid eggs, and the sandy and patchy rocky bottom. And I vividly remember just, like, the glowing dome. It's like a aquarium but you're moving it's like a four-dimensional aquarium well 
and John London was really wary, leery of getting into that submarine. But you had no problem getting into it. I think you shamed her into feeling, well, <laughs> if, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> and do it again and again. Yeah, and, and she really was enchanted. Right, Liz? Remember the transformation of being a scaredy cat and suddenly be, being just totally mesmerized? Yeah, it was really nice. The, the boys kind of each took her by the by each hand and because and, she suffers a lot from claustrophobia and we were trying to tell her that it was going to be okay that once she was in the sub that that, that feeling would go away. She'd be, you know, because the dome just kind of disappears into the water around you. And each of them, these little guys, you know, they're like, come on, Miss London, it's going to be fun. She's like, she couldn't resist, you know, she had to do it. Personally, I get sweaty hands just thinking of it. So, um. I really, you'd really be amazed. It's, it's, uh, it's just a transformational experience when you have that opportunity to be in a, in a large sphere or um, hemisphere submersible. Which, which is what you want corals. to, which is what you want more people to have, right? With the newer submersible, more people to have that experience. Yeah, it's really the the driving force behind the formation of the little nonprofit called Deep Hope, which uh, is helping to democratize direct working access using these small submersibles um, for you know for ordinary people and and hopefully particularly for um, artists and policymakers and people that really don't or haven't witnessed the incredible change and loss in the in the oceanscape. Um, you know, for them to actually see a parrotfish pooping out sand <laughs> and and realize that they're so much more important for the reef alive than dead, or to see the the real curiosity that something like a swordfish has as it comes speeding through and and you know, throws out all its fins in a hard stop and comes around and really looks at you with that big softball size eye. Um, you know, they're a thinking, uh, more, you know, fast moving animal, um, but they're so curious about things that are coming into their environment that are man made. Well, I, I, I think they're mostly divers on this call. If not, what are you waiting for? <laughs> but. We can only go on using scuba, you know, 50 meters or so. I, and I'm sure that there are others on, on this room who've been out to the edge of a drop-off and you look at your wrist and you're, you know how deep you are, you know how much time you've got, and the fish just keep going down and, and you can't, you've got to stop. <laughs> And you want to follow them, and you, you know, you just cannot go. And it was partly that urge to follow the fish, to go. I remember watching a humpback whale in Hawaii that we'd been diving with, and without the slightest trouble, that whale took off and, and disappeared out of sight in that really clear water. It went down deeper, so much deeper than I could go. Uh, using scuba. So the idea of how do we go deeper? How do we stay longer? How do we go where the whales and the fish and the other creatures go? What's actually down there? 
mean, don't you want to know? Don't you want to go? And, and that was part of maybe the principal driver that that forced me, caused me, inspired me to want to work with engineers to develop access to the sea. And then, I mean, finally, I mean, having the ability to go and see what others don't see, to want to share it, to want everyone to know. And now we need to go. The ignorance about the ocean is what enables people to be casual, to be complacent, to not care. You can't care if you don't know. You might know and not care, but you can't care if if you don't know. So all of this desire to build systems, to create technologies, to gain access to the ocean is really driven by that desire not only to know yourself, but to get others to see as well. And we're just on the edge of, of this opening of understanding about the nature of the sea, but literally, maybe 10% of the ocean has been seen by anybody. I mean, the surface, you can go and see the top of the ocean, and more and more there are technologies that are making it possible to map the ocean, to see the ocean bottom, but the ocean itself is not the top and not the bottom, it's what's in between. <laughs> and it's glorious to be at the right at the time when we're beginning to really see this world, this blue planet, with new understanding, new eyes, new means of recording, and and, and to see Taylor right there with, again, this explosion of new technologies that make it possible to document bioluminescence, to document thermoluminescence, to be able to not only see it with your own eyes sometimes, but to see what your eyes cannot, to see with sound the way dolphins do and record it and share it. And and this is how how civilization grows by learning things and passing it along from one generation to the next and 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 to be the beneficiaries now of the greatest era of exploration ever since the 1950s to the present time more has been learned and more lost about the ocean than at any time in all of previous human history so it's really exciting i mean this is the greatest era of exploration ever just now just beginning building on this rapid time of knowing and learning and losing what's out there we have a chance but it's like a race can we learn enough fast enough people care enough soon enough to reverse the decline that has really been a part of human experience in just my lifetime and certainly the lifetime of Liz and now Taylor growing up seeing and being a part of planetary freefall of decline wouldn't it be great and isn't it great <laughs> to be around with the opportunity to consciously take decisions that will turn from decline to recovery and, and finally really having a peaceful relationship with nature instead of just thinking we have to go 
cut the trees and kill the fish in order to prosper. So here we are. It's pretty exciting. You have raised so many good points. At the beginning, you said that yeah, we have mainly divers and um, only they can see a limited amount. But um, what you can give um, as information, as educational material to the um, to the ones who don't dive, um, who then feel inspired and feel they want to make a difference to protect the ocean. And I heard you saying um, the deep ocean resembles diving in a galaxy of life. And I find that so inspiring as it's the part of the ocean no one really sees uh, except for documentaries, filmmaking. Um, you have already touched on this point a little bit, but I would love to hear who inspired you to become an ocean advocate and how can we make others, um, how can we make everyone fall in love with the ocean and feel the need to protect it? And that's the question for all three of you. Back to you, Taylor. Well, I think you're talking to two of them right now. Um, do you but want yeah, to say it out I, loud? <laughs> yeah, Liz and Sophia very much inspirations. Um, and I think the other big inspiration was just the ocean and interacting with it, being around it. Um, in my lifetime, I've seen decline of starfish along the Pacific coast here. There's some really nasty, it's like a flesh-eating bacteria and in a way, it was sort of a pandemic that swept across the Pacific coast here. And just seeing that horrible decline firsthand in the 20-some-odd years I've been alive was really eye-opening. And really, it was one of those things that really made me care, seeing that change firsthand. And I think that through, at least for me, using art, is my way of exploring the world and communicating what I see in the world, but also trying to advocate for looking deep, looking closely at the world and extracting out what's beautiful about it, but also having very present in there what we're doing wrong and what we need to change to move forward into a more sustainable way of living into a healing way rather than a exploitative, extractive way. I think the exciting thing is that you're growing up in a time when this is an everyday challenge. I mean, the, the, the idea that we have to connect, well, to appreciate that climate is changing because of human actions. When I was a kid, those conversations were not taking place. I mean, the thought that humans could harm the ocean, that we could change the climate, were just preposterous. There were some brainy scientists and other individuals who could see the future and realize that we were on a trajectory that was not in our best interest, but, but now it's it's become more widely obvious and, and that's in itself cause for hope. I think that if you don't know you've got a problem, you can continue going merrily on your way without uh, it, it just in ignorance. Uh, there, you can't use ignorance as an excuse anymore for 
the kind of behavior that is taking us down the destructive pathway. But, um, yeah, <laughs> we do have problems, but we now know that they exist. And being able to take action while there's still time is cause for considerable hope and also <laughs> incentive. Let's get busy. Let's do what we know is the right thing to do instead of thinking that decline is inevitable or thinking somebody else is going to fix things. You know, everybody needs to do what they can do. Nobody can do it all, but we can all do something. And oh, Liz, you're doing more than something. You're doing more than your share. The whale, the, the critter whisperer, Liz <laughs> Taylor. Yeah. Well, you'll not forgive me, it's going to be a little bit noisy where I am. I'm, I'm on my way to um, San Francisco right now to deliver a little 3D printed model that Taylor helped to create to uh, put on display. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, we're taking it over to the Aquarium of the Bay in San Francisco, where it will be put on display as part of the uh, exhibit that they're having there on helping to reconnect people or better connect people to the to the ocean and, and showcasing some of Sylvia's work and Taylor and DOER and Morgan, everybody's work there. So it's a little bit noisy, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really about trying to figure out like what, what can people do as, as individuals and how do we really help to, to drive additional conversations and heighten awareness. And, you know, we are trying multiple methods, you know, the directed building of technology and, and then Sylvia and I have been doing a little uh, program every couple of weeks called Dive In with Liz and Sylvia to, to, again, just stimulate conversation and discussion and just see where we can take, the, take these conversations and keep it, just keep it going um, and, and really to kind of help people think about the choices they make. I mean, we all have the power to make consumer choices and better choices every day. And that's what... I think it's really inspiring to to hear some of the kids that, that write in or, or uh, you know raise their hand during some of these um, sessions that we've done and just telling us what they're going to do and how they're going to make a change and they're going to they really are cause for hope to to see to see them going out and, and making a difference every day. So we can all do something, Sylvia says. Sylvia, do you want to? Um, um, who inspired you? I had the mother of all mothers who was known in our community in New Jersey as the bird lady of the neighborhood because any injured animal or child usually wound up getting care from her. Um, little squirrels that had lost their mother. We, I remember watching how she was able to bring them back to full adult <laughs> squirrel, squirrelhood, um, injured birds, broken feathers or, or broken legs or wings. Somehow, magically, she was able to, to bring them back to good health. And I think it was her respect for life that as from the earliest time that I remember, just shaped my attitude about life. 
think the joy of killing things probably is learned behavior that we celebrate killing fish. We celebrate going out to hunt wild birds. And, and yet when you think about it, it, life is so precious. Uh, what it takes to have a, a little bird come out of an egg and become a full, glorious, flying animal. It, it's miraculous. And I think there's that sense of wonder and the sense of appreciation for all forms of life that I grew up with. And I think it is natural in kids of, of curiosity, not wanting to kill or hurt things, but rather to just get to know them. And I certainly have seen that come to life with, with Liz, that respect for all living things. I, I, coming home, and I never knew exactly what would, or who would be in the bathtub. I mean, it could be uh, a cormorant that was found in the middle of the road and needed some help to get back to be a thriving cormorant again. <laughs> or once it was open the bathroom door and there's an alligator in the bathtub. Where did that come from? It had to be Liz. Yes, of course, it was Liz. Uh, rescued from uh, a fish farm where a woman who, I think, with good intent, picked up this little alligator during a family trip to Louisiana and brought it home with her to Sacramento and then <laughs> didn't quite know what to do with it when it got too big to handle, so put it, turned it loose in, in the local fish farm and then made its way <laughs> from the, the owners of the fish farm to the Steinhardt Aquarium because, huh, what do you do with an alligator eating your fish anyway? Liz, who was volunteering at the aquarium, became the recipient of this little alligator who wound up in our bathtub and ultimately in our backyard with a, a place where it grew to be big enough to return to the Steinhardt Aquarium. Anyway, stories that emanate from, I guess, the respect for life that I acquired as a child that was naturally conveyed from my mother to me to her and now to Taylor and on beyond. Yeah, that's uh, the most normal thing. Now that Sylvia said what she's so proud about, what are the maybe the, the two or three uh, traits of character that you are most proud of in, in your sons? No, I just, it's really the, the development of their, of their strong um, work ethic that they both, that they both have. You know, they, they both taking paths that are, you know, a little bit atypical and, um, but they're not, you know, afraid to do that. They, you know, they have a, a good dogged determination about them, which is, which is, um, always needed, um, especially today more than ever. Um, so that, just that real, um, you know, resilience and determination and curiosity is another huge trait. You know, they, they just figure things out and they'll, they, uh, they don't wait for somebody to, to, uh, you know, explain things fully to them, but they go and find the information they need and, um, very collaborative in the, in their way. They're not really super, you know, competing with people, but they're really looking for ways to, 
make a difference and to include others in their in their pathway. Um, I think one really interesting thing that happened one summer we had had the pair of them at the Shaw and a bunch of their friends all came over and they decided they wanted to work on optimizing skateboard design for the summer. And so they, they really collaborated on it well and they used our water jet machine and made some highly skeletonized aluminum uh, boards and tested them all out. And, and it was this really iterative collaborative process. It's really uh, wonderful to watch unfold. Thanks, thanks so much for that. Um, so Taylor, what are you most uh, proud of as you're part of this family? How do you view that, that legacy that Sylvia started talking about from her parents to you? interesting question and one that I don't necessarily know I have a proper answer to. I, I would definitely say that one thing which has always stuck with me and that I want to continue to pass on is being observant and looking closely at the world around you. And I think that that was instilled in me just through growing up in the sort of ocean and planet-loving soup of a family, is one way to put it. Um, but really looking closely and really just taking note of what is happening in the world around you. Um, one example would be I just moved to a new place in Southern California And there's a little population of wild parrots here. And every evening between 5 and 6.30, they fly overhead and you can hear them with the windows open or closed. And it was just such uh, one of those little, like, sort of glitches in your daily routine, which is disrupted, but it really just reorients your perspective. And you're wondering, like, okay, what kind of parrots are these? And they're coming every day at 5.30, and like this morning I heard them when I woke up. So it's just taking note of those little things that I think has really just shaped my way of looking and seeing in the world. And that has definitely come from Liz and Sylvia, and growing up with this love for the ocean and love for the natural world. remember the expression on the face the first time you saw an earthworm we're out in the front yard turning rocks just to see what might be living under the rocks and and you were so surprised i was surprised at your surprise but it was not uh, that ugh or trying to kill it it was just this wide-eyed curiosity what is this little wiggly thing and it was such a gentle and Just purely that, that, that desire to want to know, who are you? <laughs> What are you doing under this rock? <laughs> And after having spent a moment allowing it to slither over your little fingers, you gently put it back under the rock, which I thought communicated at a very early stage a kind of respect for someone who for something, someone, who's not at all like you, but was alive, and you, and you, you were mindful. 
of, of looking at it from the perspective of, of the worm, putting it back where, where it lived, under the rock, and then very gently putting the rock back in place so that we didn't squish it, but that it would be back home. And those, I think, are, are natural inclinations. And if you just let it thrive, let it grow, um, the whole world would be a much better place being able to respect others and see them and feel empathy, empathy for others. And, and just seeing through the eyes of others, even with creatures who don't have eyes, like earthworms. I absolutely love that and um, this is so great about the, um, having you here as a family because we can hear stories like this and um, get to know you better from a different perspective as well and I just wanted to say a huge thank you for um, answering all of our questions. I would like to have a final word about what you thought about this room uh, from Taylor first maybe and then from Sylvia before we wrap up. Um, this, uh, there are obviously a lot of people here could listen to you guys for another hour, another two hours easily. So we'd love to have you back at some point. But what was your impression so far, Taylor? What do we miss? What do we not get to? Oh, there's always more with the ocean. And like you said, we could just keep going for hours. But overall, I think it's been a great sort of first dip into what there is out there and the potential for the future. Um, yeah, I guess I'm really looking forward to the upcoming rooms and to just keep these conversations going. But overall, I've had a blast today and I look forward to more. Sylvia? Oh, well, uh, thank you for hosting this and opening the door to possibilities that, that could follow. Imagine if we could stimulate in this group um, ideas that people have about how do we actually go forward? What's, what are the methods that we can use to turn from decline to recovery? And, and what are the hidden superpowers that are out there among individuals? Uh, ideas about what, what, what people are willing to do. Uh, that, that could really initiate the kind of change that is so urgently needed right now. We have literally maybe the next 10 years to move from where we are to get to a more secure place or lose the chance to do so forevermore. For me, it was so interesting to hear from all of your perspectives and a uh, huge thank you for coming here today and talking to us and making this room happen. So Norbert, I head over to you. Thank you very much for opening up so, 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 so widely. It's, uh, uh, it's very rare that people uh, uh, do that. So uh, uh, I, I just thank you very highly from the bottom of my heart. And uh, uh, we'll close the room sometime soon. Give you the last word, Sylvia. I think we should do this again. I think diving in with this <laughs> this wild group is is so worthwhile. And thank you, Taylor, for dreaming it up, and Liz for coming on board. And well, here we are. This is a ongoing expedition. Let's uh, <laughs> and and we're not. We don't have a big footprint. We can actually do this 
and have a have a great impact and a great time. Absolutely. So we don't have to fly around, and uh, that's a way of having a conference from from home. We'll be in touch with Sylvia and Taylor to uh, uh, have them again here very soon. Thank you so much for being with us.